He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would be present with us now, that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, that you, O Lord, would use this time for our strengthening in your spirit. And all this we ask in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. A while back, I was sitting uh, in a conference call with a, with a group. It, w- it was sort of a, uh, it's a community, it's kind of a support group, if you will. It's online, thanks COVID. Um, it's a gathering of men committed to a Christian walk that are there to support one another and hold one another accountable. And the way that, the way that the group works, the mechanics are each week one guy presents. Here's something I'm struggling with, right? And then the other guys listen. They, they sort of respond to that. They pray together. And, and then we, you know, we're done. And we sort of move on and we get together again later. A while back, the, the guy that was presenting was a sort of mild-mannered guy, right? Like a super conflict-avoidant guy. Um, the kind of guy that might be in danger of confusing sort of southern genteelness with Christianity. You know what I mean? He's a sweet guy. He starts to talk and he says, listen, I, uh, I need you to pray for me. He said, I am just consumed with anger. And it's constant. And it's eating me from the inside out. And yeah, I'm not yelling at people. I'm not, I'm not communicating that anger to anyone. But when it gets quiet, all of these thoughts rush back into my mind. The things that people have said to me, the things that people have done. And I am just angry and I don't know what to do with it. One of the other guys in the group leaned forward, clicked on his mic, said, oh, good. I thought I was the only one. You see, for both of these guys, and I imagine for many of us, we live torn between these two extremes, right? This, this knowledge that we need to forgive, this desire to be in relationship with other people, but also this experience of pain and betrayal that says, never again. I've got to do something to make sure this doesn't happen to me again. And the question we're asking is one that I think Peter is asking here. Lord, how can I possibly forgive in the midst of this pain? How is this a good thing? How many times, Lord, do I have to forgive? How many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And the answer he gets from our Lord, which we're going to look at today, is this. Peter, you're thinking about this wrong. Forgiveness isn't something you add on like another rule. Forgiveness is a completely different pattern of relationship, a completely different way of life. You know, if if we're honest, relationships aren't all they're cracked up to be right? We, we, uh, we're not exactly good for one another, are we? We're, we're not exactly good to one another. We want to be in relationship, but, you know, it, it's not like in the movies where the sort of the end and everyone's really happy and in love. You get like three days down the road and all of a sudden you're in a fight and your only thought is, how do I get this person so that they stop? 
N.T. Wright, in his, uh, his book, Introducing Christianity, puts the problem this way. He says, we all know that we belong in communities, that we were made to be social creatures, and yet we find them incredibly painful. And we're all tempted to slam the door and to stomp off into the night by ourselves. We're made for relationships, and yet we find them impossible. And so the question becomes, what do we do with the pain? If I get close to you and I know that you're going to hurt me and one day you do hurt me or I hurt you, what do we do with that pain? And I think as a society, we have two, maybe three options on the table. The first one, I call this the don't rock the boat option. The first is we just pretend like it didn't happen. We preserve the relationship at all costs, even at the cost of accountability or of justice, right? We, the answer becomes just grin and bear it. Why? because it would be uncomfortable to do otherwise. It would make the family dinners kind of awkward. And so you just shove it down where it festers until the right moment, the right prodding, the right number of drinks unlocks the door to that pit and it just erupts. Someone once said, if you repress something, it's like that dragon in the myth with Hercules, it comes up with three heads. This doesn't seem to work. The other option, on the other end of the extreme, is that we demand accountability. Proponents of this look at the first option and say that. Option one is just an excuse for evil. It's just enabling the oppressor. What we need is accountability. We need justice. You know, and there's something, there's something right there. There's something that's getting at a principle we would agree with. But if we don't get clear of our own pain, what happens? our own cries for vengeance, the call for justice rapidly becomes a call for retribution. How many times have we seen this play out on a global stage, right? Every genocide, every atrocity in history begins with a sense of being wronged and a sense of, I'm not going to let this happen again. But we also see this play out in families. We see this play out in our relationships, right? These two folks, they were such good friends, but something's happened, and now they won't rest until everyone has chosen a side. The, you know, the problem here with this answer to pain is that it's totalizing. If we demand vengeance for wrongs done to us, then eventually everything and everyone gets consumed by this kind of record-keeping. And so if option one sacrificed justice for a sort of pretend vision of relationships, a fiction of relationship, option two sacrifices the possibility of relationship for a justice that's mixed with vengeance. And we're caught in this impossible tug-of-war between relationship and accountability. What do we do? You know, I mentioned that there might be a third option, a kind of, a kind of middle ground, right, that sometimes we, particularly we religious folks, like to adopt. Uh, let, let's call it moral forgiveness. It looks like forgiveness, but it's a little different. It's not really forgiveness. It's just silent scorekeeping. It's a kind of moral determination to give someone a certain number of chances. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All right, now we're done. Now you've crossed the line. The ledger is still going. In this model of forgiveness, I have grace for you but it's only grounded in my own goodness. I'm a good person, my own morality. And the question becomes, if that's true, how much grace do I have to give someone to still be moral? How much grace does it take before I'm justified in cutting you off? And this is the conversation that Peter is having with Jesus. 
as someone committed to being a morally upright person, right? And, and Peter is not morally slothful. He's left everything to follow this rabbi around the world. He cares about being a good person, but still trapped in this tug-of-war between options one and two, Peter wants to know, how much grace do I have to extend for God to consider me a good person? And for a moment, it kind of looks like he and Jesus are caught in a bidding war, right? The, the, the religious wisdom of the day, right, the clergy of the day would say, you forgive someone three times, three times, and then you really have to wonder if they meant it when they apologized, right? Peter comes in and says, well, I can do better than that. Seven times. Jesus, do I have to forgive seven times? And I think what he's looking for, it's like when you go to your boss and you say, hey, we can get this project done by Thursday. And there's no way you're going to get the project done by Thursday. But you say that so your boss will say, hey, you know what? Take till Friday. I think he's waiting for Jesus to say, buddy, that's great. But, you know, six times is enough. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says 77 times. If you, if you grew up with the translation I grew up with, he says seven times 70. In, in Greek, it's the same. 70 times, it's just seven and 70, right? 70 times seven, 77. In Greek, it's the same. In, my, in the version I grew up with, Jesus is responding with a kind of math, which is not how bidding works, by the way. But you start wondering, what is that like? I remember as a kid, is it 490? Is that the answer? What? Peter's on the right track. He just like really undershot. Maybe what Jesus means is that the number is so big that you're going to forget as you're counting. Maybe Peter's on the right track. He just hasn't shot high enough. Maybe. But I don't think so. I don't actually think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think what's actually going on, Jesus chose that phrase, which again in Greek, that 70 and 7, because of the resonance that it has with something Peter learned early in his childhood. He's evoking a memory. You see, what Peter would have recognized in Jesus' response is the story he memorized as a kid. We teach children stories to teach them about the world, right? We, we teach them fables, right? We've, the tortoise and the hare, George Washington and the cherry tree. We're giving them a framework for the world. Where if you're Jewish, the framework you give your children for the world is Genesis, you teach them stories. By a young age at this time, Jewish boys would have memorized the Torah, would have memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Would have all been up here. And right at the beginning of Genesis is this horror story about revenge. We actually read it earlier today, but I have a suspicion that we all missed it because there was a much more interesting story that came before the story about revenge. There was just a story about murder. Not revenge at all, just murder. And then we had some genealogies, which is where everybody kind of zones out. And then we have this story about revenge. It's the story of Lamech. And here's the deal. These are, like I said, horror stories. The whole point of this portion of Genesis is how things went from bad to worse. Lamech is a monster. Cain murders Abel, and it's horrible. But even Cain realizes something of the horror of what he's done. What does he say? I, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. I'm in danger. Lamech, he murders a young man and flaunts it. He tells his wives, he's also the first polygamist, which is part of why you know there's something wrong with him. He tells his wives, he says, someone hurt me today, and you know what I did? I killed him. And if anybody's got something to say about it, let him come and get it. I'll pay it out 70 times seven. 
70 times seven. You see, in this story, Lamech stands as the patriarch, we might say the godfather, of the world's cycle of vengeance and retribution. And that is what Jesus is reminding Peter of when he says 70 times seven. Fast forward to our gospel story. Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about a number. He's saying, just as Lamech founded a cycle of vengeance and retribution that has consumed everything, I am creating a new pattern, a new way of relating to one another. I'm giving you not just a number, not just another rule, a complete transformation of how you relate to one another. But that's hard to grasp, right? Because as soon as Jesus starts talking about forgiveness, we're all in option three, right? We're just thinking, okay, more willpower. I think Jesus knows that's where Peter is. So he tells him a story to help him see how his whole framework for vengeance and forgiveness has to be reconstructed. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle accounts, but finds that his servant is trapped under an infinite debt. By the word here, by the way, the words here, 10,000 talents, those are just the, it's the biggest words you can use for a unit of measurement. If we were going to tell the story today, we'd say he owed him a zillion dollars, right? It's just, it doesn't matter. It's infinite. There's no paying this off. It's a crushing load he'll never get out from under. And I wonder if it's worthwhile just to take a moment and imagine what life was like for the servant before this meeting. Walking under this infinite load in terror that someone else is going to realize that he's a dead man. What does he do in this place with this amount of guilt walking around? How does he handle the strain? Does he hold out a false hope? Maybe one day, you know, my, uh, listen... I don't know, my good deeds count for something, right? I, I'm going to be able to, to pay it off given enough time. Or, or maybe he just distracts himself. He, he just finds peace wherever he can get it and just chases that. Don't think about it too much. And then the worst happens, and he gets the summons to the palace. And, you know, even then he tries to lie to the king. He says, I'm going to pay it all back. Just give me a little time. He's not going to pay it back. He could work for a thousand years and he wouldn't even make a dent in the amount of debt that he has. It's amazing the lengths that we will go to to deceive ourselves about our own complicity. The kind of fictions we create in our mind about how things stack up. Here's the point. If you want to understand the servant's debt, you have to understand that the price of sin is absolutely inescapable. This past week, I, I uh, got a letter from a university I'm connected with. And it, it said, uh, it was talking about repenting of the fact that the land that the university on was forcibly taken from indigenous people, right? From the people that were already there. They're saying, this is awful. We want to acknowledge this. And then I saw a commercial, maybe less sincere, uh, from Apple, where they also were talking, it was kind of a strange commercial. They were in conversation with Mother Nature, but they were repenting of the damage that their products have done to the environment. They're saying, we're going to try and do better. Here's the thing. Those are both bad things, but we're kidding ourselves if we think the list stops there. If at the end of the day, Apple goes home and pats itself on the back and says, all right, we're clean now. No, we're not anywhere close. And if it's true of corporations, how much is it true of us? How much more? 
One time I, I was sitting in a courthouse, I was watching a man on trial for egregious crimes that he had committed against his children. And as I was watching him, I was thinking about the children. I was thinking about the ways in which these crimes against them were going to ripple throughout their entire lives. And we're going to ripple through their children's lives and their children's children. That this was going to go out into eternity, the effects of this sin. And I kept thinking to myself, what on earth makes up for this? What possible punishment is going to satisfy this? And you know, the difference between me and that guy is just one of degrees, right? It's, it's just... It, it's not a qualitative difference. It's just a quantity about sort of how much we've harmed our children. But I have said things to my kids that shape them, right? We've all said things to people that we love that will hurt them in ways that will ripple out into the future. I've failed to love God and to love my neighbor in ways that I cannot begin to account for. And it's not that I want us to stay here in this place, but I think we have to be honest for a moment. If there's any limit on grace, if grace is the kind of thing that has a number attached to it, we all blew it a long time ago. As long as the system is one of vengeance and retribution, we're all trapped under an infinite weight. And that's Jesus' point with Peter. The servant cannot pay. We all know this part, but it's then that the logic of the kingdom begins to break through. Something different happens. Remember, Christ is describing to Peter a different way of life not based on the curse of Lamech. And so he says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. Forgave it. Completely. Do you see the totality there? He doesn't release the servant and say, well, you've asked for some more time, so I'm going to give you some more time. Maybe you can... Uh, make up for some of the bad things you've done. You can maybe tip the scales a little bit. No, he completely removes the debt. He says, we're, we're just going to do away with this. And this, this has implications for their relationship, right? It, it means that they can't go forward as business partners, right? If, if I borrow a lot of money from you, and then you forgive the debt, we, I can't like go back and borrow more money, right? We're our relationship has changed. He looks at him not as a servant who exists to keep the accounts balanced, but as an object of love under an impossible load, as one who is suffering, and he has pity. It's like our psalm says today, as a father pities his children. He makes him the kind of creature to whom debt no longer applies. As Paul says in Romans chapter 7, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. And just so we're clear here, what happens to the debt? The, the debt doesn't just go away, right? If God's not taking option one and just pretending that nothing has happened. If I loan you money and I forgive that debt, then I absorb the cost. I'm out that amount of money. I'm the one who's taking it. And so in the kingdom, it's just as Paul says, the forgiveness of the people of God is not bought with ignorance. It's bought with a price. It's purchased in the broken and crucified body of Christ. The debt is not ignored. It's transferred to one who willingly took it up. And here's the kicker. Is the one who's willingly taking it up is the one who's talking to Peter right then. He's telling Peter, 
I am taking this from you. The story that Christ is telling Peter doesn't stop there, though, right? He keeps going. There's another part of the story. It can't stop there because Jesus, by purchasing our debt, is remaking the entire pattern of the world, and that includes our relationships with others. So Christ returns to Peter's earlier question, how often do I have to forgive? And Christ answers him by answering the implied question, which is, what what would it be like if I stopped forgiving? So he says, refusing to forgive your brother would be like, and he's picking up in verse 28, that same servant going out and finding one of his fellow servants who owed him a a trifling, a hundred denarii, a few thousand dollars, but nothing compared to the other. And seizing him, began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. How could we explain the action of such a servant? How could we explain our own refusal to forgive? Perhaps the the servant thinks the king is a liar. Maybe he thinks, I'm going to get the money and then I'll pay him back because one day he's going to remember the debt. Or maybe he thinks that in in holding this standard, he's going to convince the king that he was worth saving, right? Either way, he's operating within that old system. He's operating as one to whom debt applies, one who can receive and give debt. And I'm, you know, as I look at this, I'm ashamed to say that this is exactly what I do. I know that Christ has forgiven me, and yet still I believe I behave as if I were earning God's grace, as if I could somehow prove to God that I was worth saving. And so the moment someone sins against me, the moment someone violates my own account books, my own standard that I'm holding so rigidly, all of that comes back out. I'm not resting in the love of God. There's not a mercy that flows out from that. I respond with indignation and self-protection. How dare they do that to me? Because I'm still keeping the old accounts. Christ says, that'll never work. You can't have it both ways. You cannot hold your brother to the fire of retribution while also accepting the salvation of God. The two are incommensurable. You have to choose. The servant refused to live by the principle of forgiveness, and so his debt came crashing back down upon him. This is a shocking and troubling assertion. It's one from our Lord that demands an intentional examination of our relationships. How am I living? And that's good, right? It's good to take a moment and to think through those things. But here's the deal. We're really tempted at that moment to fall back into option three, right? We're really tempted at that moment. As soon as we hear there are sort of implications for how we live, oh, well, it's all about willpower. I'm going back to sort of really having a lot of will. There's a really high challenge rating here. Don't don't miss the forest for the trees, right? The one that says, don't fall back into that legalistic framework, the one that says, I have to forgive so many times so that I'll be good with God. Our life in the kingdom doesn't begin with us. That's the point. Our life in the kingdom begins with the love of God. Christ has paid the price for your sins. Christ has taken you out of the system of Lamech. Listen to the words of St. Paul in Colossians. God in Christ has delivered you from the domain of darkness. He's transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And because you are forgiven, 
Because you are no longer the kind of being to whom debt applies, you're no longer in that old way of doing things, then you can no longer hold your brother or sister there. There's only one conceivable way forward in your relationships, one reasonable response to the grace of God. You act as a new kind of people because you are a new kind of people. A people whose whole mode of being is characterized not by vengeance, but by forgiveness. Forgiveness becomes, as one commentator says, the very oxygen of the kingdom. We breathe in the forgiveness of God and we breathe out a renewed relationship with one another. Now, some of that is easy to say and hard to do. We find ourselves back in that story that I told at the beginning where we're living in this place in between, right? We're living in the now and the not yet. Christ has purchased me. Christ has forgiven me. I'm seeking to live in the kingdom, and yet I find this so difficult to live this new kind of life. And we, like Peter, have all sorts of questions and not a little fear. What if someone hurts me again? What does it mean to extend forgiveness to someone who isn't repentant? What, what do I do with all of this anger? If you're wrestling with that, I'd like to leave you with just a few words of pastoral advice, right? Just a few thoughts to take with you through your week from someone who also is struggling with this. The first is that forgiveness begins with the work of God. Forgiveness is not you in your own strength pretending that something didn't hurt you. It's not you in your own strength taking the higher road. Forgiveness is you turning to the Father, receiving forgiveness from God that He's already done for you. And relatedly, the second thing to leave you with is something that uh, Tim Keller has said. Tim Keller was a pastor and theologian in New York. He said, forgiveness has two aspects. It has a, a vertical and a horizontal, right? There's in forgiveness, we relinquish our claims to vindication before God. That's the vertical. We are acknowledging to God that we're no longer living in this old pattern. That has to happen first. And then the horizontal is that we have an openness to live in a relationship of love with the person who hurt us. Now, love doesn't mean that you don't confront them right? Quite the opposite. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and confront him. And love doesn't mean that you go back to a relationship where the rules of engagement are fundamentally twisted and abusive. In such instances, love requires bringing those patterns into the light. But it does mean, and this is enough self-sacrifice on its own, that you give up your claims to retribution. You give up, you lay down your rights to vengeance. If you're struggling with how to apply forgiveness in your life, you do like the man in the story I mentioned at the beginning. Seek guidance from the people around you, right? I loved what Father Daniel said last week. He said the Christian virtues aren't played out individually. They're not, they're not something that we accomplish in our own strength, and then if we can't do it, we just give up, right? That's not how Christ saves us. He saves us by bringing us into a community. If you're struggling with what does it mean to forgive this person, Bring it to the community. Find a trusted friend or mentor in the faith. Set up a pastoral appointment. Come and let your brothers and sisters walk through this with you. And finally, remember that as much as there is patience and help for you in the community of God's people, 
there's even more in your Father who loves you. There's a story in the Gospels that I, that I hold to, that I cling to throughout my life. It's the story of a man whose son is sick, and he's bringing him to Jesus to try to heal him. But he's struggling. How do I just turn over something so precious to me, to God? And Jesus says, do you believe that I can heal him? And the only honest answer is, Jesus, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. Take that as a prayer in the midst of these relationships. God, I forgive. Help my unforgiveness. Help me, Lord, to walk in the way that you have called me to live. If you're struggling with forgiveness today, hold that as a prayer up to God. Peter wanted to know how many more times Christ was going to require that he forgive. But forgiveness in the kingdom of God isn't something you add on like another rule. Forgiveness is a completely different pattern of life, a pattern that begins with what Christ has purchased for us. The Lord has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved Son. He has given you a way to relate to him and to one another without vengeance, without scorecards. Go forth rejoicing in that peace from God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.